0: welcome to the active training team podcast where we talk about sharing ideas adding value and increasing engagement in safety leadership my name is adam christopher and i'm a director at active training team att use drama to explore behavior in the world of safety health and well-being I hope you enjoyed our first episode, which was all about some of the challenges facing the rapidly expanding renewable energy sector. If you haven't listened to it yet, please do check it out. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And you can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or at activetrainingteam.co.uk. So we decided to release a partner episode to go alongside our Vulnerable Road User podcast, I had a fantastic conversation with Kate Cairns, and it just seemed a waste not to allow people to hear what Kate had to say. Kate has spent 20 years working in construction as a civil engineer with a whole host of achievements and accolades to her name, and she's the founder of the See Me, Save Me campaign. And her work over the last 10 years has gone a a long way into reducing the dangers, certainly when it comes to Users of the roads coming up against these heavy goods vehicles. So take a listen to this long form interview between Kate and myself, and I really hope that you find it enlightening.
1: Yeah, we're rolling. There's a movement now, you know, not to call them vulnerable road users.
0: The word vulnerable, what does the word vulnerable mean to you?
1: I guess it means exposed to danger.
0: Okay. And I, so I like that definition. Kate Cairn's definition of vulnerable is exposing some uh, how exposed you are that person that thing is to danger so what's danger
1: it's the potential to cause harm
0: and be harmed yeah so there's a movement to stop using the term vulnerable road user what, what, what yes. are they what do people want us to, to so refer to danger and exposing yourself to danger
1: exploring that you are vulnerable when you're exposed to danger. If you're a pedestrian walking along a street and nobody's there, you're not vulnerable. If you're cycling along a route, which is designed for a cyclist to cycle along, you're not vulnerable. You only become vulnerable when danger is placed in close proximity to you. So by calling somebody a vulnerable road user or a victim, you see this in um, you know other crimes where people don't like to be labeled a victim. Um, you're putting the emphasis on that vulnerable person, that you're defining them as vulnerable, we're defining them as a victim, uh, implying that the problem is with them, when in fact, if you remove the dangerous traffic, if you remove the motor vehicle, if you create a city like the one in Spain where they banned cars from 2009 and there hasn't been one single traffic death, are those people walking and cycling the street vulnerable? No, they're not. They're just people. And also there's the issue of defining people by the mode in which they're traveling. So we talk about a cyclist or a driver. And then we attach connotations or stereotypes. But, you know, today I'm cycling. Uh, I'm a person on a bike. Tomorrow I'll be driving my motorbike. What, am I a motorcyclist tomorrow? And then when I'm driving my tractor at the weekend in my vegetable patch, am I, you know, a plant driver or a man in a van when I'm with my partner in his van? And it's true that when I get in my partner's van, he's a carpenter, I do feel like a man in a van. I feel raised up. I feel higher. I I feel more powerful. But we're all just people choosing a different mode of transport. And by attaching the word vulnerable as a descriptive term or defining term, I think we're undermining potentially the focus, we're taking away from the focus on the cause of danger, okay. that potential to cause harm. And if you look at risk management structures and hierarchy and systems, we must remove the harm in the first place, so, not look at the victim or what the victim should this be. This is how given. we
0: can design the danger, at the very least to minimize it. So, okay, so we have this term... Whether, whether it's going to be phased out vulnerable road users. What makes people who use the road, either as pedestrians, cyclists, motorcyclists, car drivers, van drivers, HGV drivers, what makes them more exposed to danger, do you think?
1: Or well, each of those groups, do you mean?
0: General, general road users. What makes them more exposed to danger?
1: I think there's a lack of empathy between different road users and when I after I I used to ride my motorbike uh, 20 miles every day out when I worked on terminal 5 I used to ride a motorbike from Peckham um it was a 650 um down the A4 and when I did that uh when I got back in my car every time I was always checking in my mirror for a motorbike coming and when one came I indicated and pulled over slightly to let him or her know that i'd seen them in my mirror i knew they were coming and i was was not going to pull out in front of them that i had seen them and that's just a little thing that i would learned because when you're filtering through station you're s- slow moving traffic you're always waiting for that one person who hasn't checked the mirror suddenly thinks they're going to swerve and switch lanes and can just take you out so i have empathy now great empathy with motorcyclists because i know they're in a vulnerable position when they're doing that when they're filtering through traffic and i think um In other countries in Europe, where the majority of the population cycle, when those people are driving, they're empathetic to cyclists and they behave in an understanding manner. And when we do um, um, driver training, when we get lorry drivers on bicycles and make them cycle down the road with a big truck behind them and are a little bit scared... When they get back in their lorry, they drive in a much more considerate manner. And when we put cyclists in trucks to show them the blind spots, then they don't go up the inside. So it's all about empathy, I think, and understanding each other's risks uh, in different environments. So there's human behavior, isn't there, that presents a risk. So a gun is not dangerous and doesn't make me vulnerable if it's locked in a drawer. When I get some someone swinging it around in a classroom full of children, then those children are vulnerable, aren't they? So it's the environment that we're in, and also the behaviour of those around us.
0: And our awareness. And our awareness to the people around us, the environment, the conditions. But I love that. Empathy. I'm empathising or understanding what the responsibilities are of a pedestrian, because I'm a pedestrian, for, in your case because you've, you ride bikes, motorbikes, cars, tractors being in a white van, okay, so we we have that awareness of what it might be like in someone else's shoes because what you're saying, using a road is a shared experience.
1: Mm. Yeah, now there's the share the road phrase and I've heard it said that we all have an equal responsibility to share the space. Now, I wouldn't really agree with that because it's a bit like David and Goliath, isn't it? The potential for a 32-tonne fully-laden tipper lorry travelling at 2 miles an hour to kill someone is 78 times that of a car. So a pedestrian is much more vulnerable than a cyclist was by at 15 miles an hour. So whenever I cycle and a pedestrian steps out in front of me, goes on a pedestrian, I will always brake, if they're right or if they're wrong, I will always brake and I always say after you because they are more vulnerable than me. And in other countries, we have presumed liability where the vehicle that has a potential to cause the greatest harm must um, show that they haven't caused the harm. So the liability is on them to prove that they weren't in the wrong. And I, I kind of try and carry that out anyway in whatever mode of transport that I choose to take.
0: So how you behave, you think, is key to keeping others around you and yourself yeah. safe.
1: and if you're in charge of a 32-ton tipper lorry and you're professional Professional driver is your job. I think you must be much more conscious and take much more responsibility about sharing invert commas the space Um, compared to a a lady of 94 who's crossing the road with her shopping. You're not sharing that space on equal grounds or equal power or equal potential to do harm. It's you know a complete dichotomy or antithesis um, of power and potential to do harm. So when we talk about sharing. Um, It's not necessarily sharing equally.
0: Okay, I like that. So that is about recognising your responsibility and the possible impact your actions will have on those around you. Indeed. And that can actually go up the chain as well, I guess, because if a cyclist is cycling in a way that is putting and compromising other people's ability to drive carefully, then they should have that responsibility going back up the food chain to the Mm. big 32, 35 ton tipper. Mm.
1: Well, they should understand that the driver might not be able to see them, that they don't have manoeuvrability. So if they duck in and out, they can do that if if they choose, if they've assessed the situation. But but they should consider the restrictions that uh, the driver has placed upon him. Now that is, I consider, unacceptable restrictions that are, tipper can drive through the centre of london have massive blind spots all around them especially when they're in highly pedestrianized zones i just think we've come to a situation where we've got hdvs that haven't changed in design pretty much since the 60s to the exterior and and um, we've had a massive growth in cycling pedestrianization and these vehicles now are not designed for the streets and Which is why I'm really glad now that we've got new direct vision standards coming in. We've eventually, in the last few years, got direct vision lorries. We've got the mayor's um, direct vision standard coming in next year. Now the industry has woken up to the idea, to the fact that these vehicles aren't fit for purpose. The drivers need better training. And we all have a responsibility to, to, make, to make sure that people are safe.
0: So it's again talking about how do we design the risk out of what we do you talked about professional there so we're saying that certain people who use the road are professional road users who are they
1: they're commercial drivers people whose job it is to drive goods and materials around town so somebody is that is their job they have a salary or at least a paycheck and someone is procuring those services. So a responsible client surely does not want the result of their business activities to be a collision or a death on the roads. So in the construction industry that's why now we we've got the clock standard and we're asking clients to specify it in their contract documents. Because we on site is very tightly controlled and Safety's improved massively over the last 10, 20 years. And it's accepted that any incident or fatality that happens on site is our responsibility. So when those vehicles move off-site, two metres out of the site boundary, why is that suddenly not our responsibility when, if, as a client, that vehicle would not exist if it wasn't for our project and the need to move our goods and materials?
0: So there's more... We're sharing the responsibility. Not only do you have the professional drivers, and if it's in construction, that will be the guys that are taking the goods who've been procured to take the goods from A to B on behalf of the client or on behalf of their bosses, the, the contractors who are employed by the client. But you're, you're pointing a, a, a big finger at not just the professional drivers, And not just at them, but their bosses, the contractors. But you're definitely saying, hang on a second, the people that procure this work from these contractors who then put it onto the drivers, the client, you have a big responsibility as well.
1: Yeah, indeed. Because that's where the power is. The power is in the procurement. They can specify what they like. And if the contractors don't meet that specification they're not gonna get the work, then that by default drives improved standards. And we can't expect contractors to put in extra measures, do extra training, buy better kit, which is more expensive, if we don't create the commercial environment for them to do their job in a responsible, sustainable manner. I mean that's just good business, isn't it? You wouldn't any business, you wouldn't want people working from for you who weren't trained and didn't have adequate kit. You say I'm pointing the finger a third of crashes—that's 200 killed or seriously injured each week—involve a vehicle being driven for work. So that is what what are employers and clients doing about managing that risk? And I see a lot of talk about health and safety on site. It's a big issue. You know, no deaths acceptable on site. We have a global safety shutdown if everything happens. Lessons must be learned. All that happens on site, but there's often a massive blind spot in organisations with their people who drive. Off-site
0: and how, and how far are we away? Because I think that's absolutely right. You've you've got the client, and you've got the contractors, and then you've got the drivers. And if the drivers haven't been sufficiently trained, if the plant kit isn't of a standard that's going to enable them to be as professional as they possibly can, then you're more likely to have an incident yeah. involving some form of harm or loss.
1: Yeah. And when I do my workshops and my professional speaking, I talk about the Swiss cheese effect, which is each of these incidents, each of these situations you're creating a hole through which you can have a potentially catastrophic serious injury. And um, a guy I know always says that the most important bit of kit on a vehicle is the driver. So you have to have the best possible vehicle that you can have and you have to have the best driver training that you can have but you also have to have the best operations i.e the culture environment in which they're working so for example i've been on training excellent training for drivers i've seen excellent vehicles direct vision vehicles with cameras and sensors and then when i've spoken to those drivers They've said that they're told to get across London in a certain amount of time and make those three drops, and it's physically not possible for them to do that and drive safely. So it's really important as well that you create the the organisational culture and the right operational environment for them to feel empowered to be able to do their job safely. So you need to train the drivers, make sure they're competent, they're fit to drive, they've had their eyesight test, they're not fatigued, they're not hungover, they're not stressed. We need the vehicles that they can see out of, And we need operations, responsible operations environments in in which they can work.
0: So what we're saying is that the people who are sending these guys out to work have to give these guys work that is reasonable for them to achieve in a timely and safe manner. Exactly. So why isn't that happening?
1: I think we have an issue with culture. I think there are many organisations that their leadership's committed. They have policies and procedures. They have communication strategies, but there's a breakdown somewhere. There's a breakdown and that culture isn't filtering all the way down. And usually it's not the drivers. They normally want to do a good job. It's kind of, I was talking to a colleague just the other day, he was talking about the tricolet in between where there's kind of stagnation or, the operation managers they don't actually understand or appreciate the impact of what they're doing or the pressure they're putting drivers under so the drivers getting pressure from the employer they're getting pressure from the customer they're getting pressure from the contract you know they're getting pressure constant pressure all the time they're doing a really difficult job and we have to give them the tools and the training and the environment in which to do that properly otherwise you know on the ground otherwise procedures and policies and company values aren't going to make any difference
0: because there's a lot of good people out there aren't there with with regard to this there's a lot of good drivers out there that want to want to do a good professional job and keep everybody safe there's a lot of good I've I've had the joy and pleasure of working with some people at the tops of organisations and I've had the people uh, joy of working with people who have just come in and brand new to to an industry And I meet some great people with a great attitude and a great desire. But I also meet people who seem a little bit like they're banging their head against a Mm. brick wall with it. Dependent on the people often who are around them or just above them and how they behave and how they work. And that's coming to this treacle layer where something has broken down.
1: And I think we were talking in another conversation about who influences one most and, you know, mothers influence children up to a certain age and then they're highly influenced by their peer group once they get over the age of about 11. They're highly influenced more so by their peer group. I'm losing control rapidly of my 11-year-old daughter because she's influenced more by her peer group now. And I think whatever the MD says or the policies say, people are influenced by their peer groups or so their colleagues. So you might have, a, have many stories where there's a procedure in place, they've had the training, but the slightly senior or elderly colleague says, oh, don't do it that way, mate, do it this way. We've always done it this way. This is a better way to do it. Don't worry about that procedure. Um, that's And people more often than not are influenced by that person who's on their level. So it's about weeding out those people and making sure that they understand and that we have kind of role models speaking of and living the values of the organization all the way through right from the top right down to the bottom that's a very difficult thing to achieve
0: and every layer including this treacle layer has to has to be take responsibility for their role within ensuring that how we do things is this way yeah okay so what more needs to happen, improve communication, improve the structure, the infrastructure, improve the quality of the vehicles out there, improve the attitude and behavior of those driving whatever the vehicle is. Where are we now in
1: 2018? Mm-hmm. Well, it was, it's going to be the 10th anniversary in February of my sister's death. So I've been campaigning for improved construction logistics for nearly a decade now, nine years. And we've come a massive way from the beginning. At the you know, in two thousand nine, two thousand ten I felt very much a lone voice. Then we were talking about cameras and sensors on lorries as a as a quick fix, but it became quickly clear that drivers had sensory overload and that we needed a redesign of the cab as we've been talking about and is now happening. But when I mentioned that at the time in 2010, 11, people would do the old trick that they do, you know, the old timers, Oh, don't be ridiculous. We can't redesign a cab, you know, that we need the engine up front because of the payload. And you know, what was, you know, you're a woman who has silly suggestion that is we've been in this industry for years and years. And I would say, well, we can put a man on the moon 40 years ago. Why the hell can't we redesign a cab? Is it that difficult? There were so many people dying and, We've come a long, long way. We've got now we've got the clock standards. It's just gone through its third revision, which I've been involved with just last week.
0: Tell me tell me what what is it for for those who might be listening who who aren't familiar with clocks or clock standards, tell me more about that, please.
1: Clock stands for the construction logistics and community safety standard. It was cyclist construction logistics and cyclist safety standard, but we've realized that there are actually more than twice as many pedestrians killed by HGVs than there are cyclists. So it's taken the emphasis off cyclists. So it's an industry standard that was kind of, um, in 2012, I think it was the end of 2012, there was a spate of deaths in London. And I've been talking about this for a long, long time. And suddenly there was a spate of deaths. And Peter Hendy, who's a traffic commissioner at the time, wrote to all the heads of construction firms and said, what are we going to do about this? Um, TfL commissioned a report to look into the propensity of construction vehicles in these deaths. And it transpires, which I knew already from anecdotal evidence in my experience, that tipper lorries, skip lorries and cement mixers were grossly disproportionate in cyclist deaths. So HGVs involved 50% of cyclist deaths in London, but make up only 4% of traffic. And that's because of the massive blind spots that we have all around the cabs.
0: Okay, so the the kit that they're driving, the size of, of it, yeah.
1: Physically, so in 2010, I went to Strasbourg with my MEP to try and or to, to call for mandatory cameras and sensors and lorries. We had a written declaration, 81, which was um, supported by more than half of the MEPs. Only 10% of written declarations get through. So that was a major, major success. But then again, I went in twenty thirteen with TfL to call for change in cam designs for an amendment to Directive ninety six fifty three, which was successful, but then they the manufacturers pushed that back for about seven years. They said we well, we, we need time to change our designs. And anyway, we're the experts in HGV design, what do you know about it? Leave it to us. So that is now coming through. So we've got a change in um, cab design. We've got the clock standard, which looks at driver training. It looks at cab design and it looks at operations, which I was talking about before. Uh, it was seen initially as a London issue, but it's now being rolled out across the UK. And, and in fact, as many people are killed on rural roads as London roads, people think it's a cyclist issue, but it's a pedestrian issue as well. And it's happening, you know, all over the all over the country so when you say, so we've made massive strides in the last 10 years. However, there are still 466 people on average killed or seriously injured by HCVs across the UK.
0: Awful. Okay.
1: So there have been hundreds of people killed by HCV since my sister. So in one way, I think I've made a massive change and in another way i feel like a failure because every time i see a death in the news i know what that family's going through
0: tell me a little bit about this uh, if you don't mind your sister was killed tell us about that kate if you don't mind
1: Ailey was 30 years old she was a fit strong and experienced cyclist she'd cycled in dubai when she worked in dubai she'd done london to brighton a couple of times she cycled the same route every day, 20 mile round trip for three years. So she's very competent. And she'd actually done exchange in places. I remember talking about her getting into a lorry and she'd done the ex- exchange in places scheme. So she knew about the dangers of HTVs. She was cycling to work through Notting Hill Gate and she was struck from behind by a 32 ton fully laden tipper lorry and she was dragged and crushed and laid under the wheels, pinned by her pelvis. She was fully conscious, and she asked passers-by, please help me, please help me. And then two hours later, she was dead.
0: Okay. Where were you at this time? Do you you remember what you were doing?
1: I do remember where I was because I had come to London to deliver some training, uh, a two-day training course, and I was staying with her. So I spent the night before in her flat and I'd said goodbye to her that morning and gone to my training and because I was delivering the training I'd turned my phone off and put it in my bag and in the break I looked at my phone and I had 15 missed calls from a variety of people, from her boyfriend, from my partner, from her friend and I was just kind of filled with dread.
0: When you took those calls, where did you go? What happened next?
1: Oh, it's the funny because I had calls from a variety of people but the first person I tried to call was Ailey to find out what was happening and her phone wasn't answered. So, do you know, I can't even remember who I spoke to next. I think it was a boyfriend and he just said uh, Ailey's in the Royal London Hospital. So I just made my excuses, apologies at the training, and went to Royal London Hospital. And I, was sh- um, I I knew it was bad because there was a massive queue of people and I went to the desk and said, said her name and they came and got me and ushered me right past the whole queue and took me into um another room. And it was just full of strange people who I didn't know who they were. Uh, and they were it was Ailey's colleagues, 80's friends, 80's boyfriend, um, flatmates. They kind of all got there before me.
0: OK. And then there's your mum, there's your dad, there's Ailey. Who else is in your family?
1: Um, two brothers, uh, four, four children, two girls, two boys.
0: What's been the impact of Ailey's death on your family?
1: Some say that when a tragedy happens, um, you know, families come together and they're stronger. But it's very difficult because I think we all reacted very differently. So, for example, at at Christmas or her birthday, um, my mother or just generally my mother wants to talk about her all the time. Well, not all the time, but she wants to keep her alive. She wants to be able to mention Amy in a conversation. And with my father, I think he just can't really bear to talk about it. We had dinner a while ago and um, my mother mentioned Ailey's name and he just, not immediately, but he quietly sort of got up and just left. Um, my brother feels incredibly guilty because he didn't see enough of her. He lives in Switzerland and he felt he didn't see enough of her. Um, and I've turned my grief and pain into to try and be a cause for change and try and use that in a positive way to make widespread change so that others don't have to experience what she did and what we have done as a family.
0: So the ripple effect is is huge because you've lost a member of your family but the manner in which you lost that person plays a big part in that grief and that pain.
1: Because it's so shocking. It's so shocking and it's not like that they're ill Or there's time to put the affairs in order. There's no time to say goodbye. There's no time to say sorry. There's no time to say I love you. Just one day they're just gone and they're never going to come back. And that's a very bizarre and disturbing feeling. But you talk about ripple effects. I went to um, being an engineer. I wanted to know exactly what had happened. Knowing she was an experienced cyclist. I wanted to know what had gone wrong. And the police investigation was incompetent at best. And I went and did a a witness appeal on the streets. And um, a woman approached me with two little girls because it happened at four minutes to nine on a Thursday morning in Notting Hill Gate, so it was full of people. And um, she was holding hands with these two little girls and they were looking up at me. And um, they'd said to her, "Um, is that the lady that was lying on the road? Because I obviously looked a bit like my sister, so... She told them, yes, that she was all right. And she'd woken up and she was fine. But they'd been there. She was lying on the road. There was blood everywhere. And she told me that they were traumatized. They had nightmares. They had to go to the doctors. They had to get counseling. This is just two little girls that have been walking by that day who know that won't feature on any system or record or log anywhere. How many other people, you know, someone contacted me. She was on a double-decker bus. She'd driven by and seen it. You know, there must be... Scores, if not hundreds of people that are affected by what happened in that moment, that we, we have no comprehension about how far and how wide the ripples go.
0: When the work that we do, we sometimes find ourselves up against the money people, and they want to know how we quantify and qualify the success of the work that we do and what you've just been saying to me about the ripple effect it's impossible to measure but some people don't see it like that Mm. do they Mm. the people that need to provide this training whether it's you talking to your guys who are the logistics directors who own these trucks which aren't cheap and so how much understanding do we have of those guys when we're saying no hang on you need direct vision or low entry cabs because it's safer it's better for your drivers we're going to avoid the potential tragedy actually tell me a little bit about about the driver because i'm interested how a driver might feel who's on the who's responsible for somebody's
1: death well because the police investigation was so poor Um, They didn't check his eyesight until I asked them to check his eyesight.
0: What made you want to check his eyesight? Well, I
1: wanted to know exactly what the contributory factors might have been. So I was asking the police, what did his mobile phone say? What was his eyesight? Did you check the mirrors? Were the mirrors set up correctly? Was he tired? Um, How much training did he have? I was asking these questions because to me, they were logical questions that police should have been asking anyway. So that, not necessarily to apportion blame so that we can make sure that, you know, this guy doesn't have to do this again. And because I was well-placed being a construction industry professional, um, you know, I, it was my industry that was involved in my sister's death. So I felt compelled to do something about that. And they just weren't interested. They said, mm, do you know, what? I don't think we've checked his eyes. I said, well, do you think you could check his eyes, please? And then they waited. That was three months in. I just assumed they had. And then they waited another three months to check his eyes. And he dramatically failed his eyesight test. He couldn't even see the number plate for, uh, you know, driver for a car. Which is less stringent than a truck. But because they waited six months, his lawyer argued that his eyesight had been fine on the day and it had deteriorated massively in six months. And so there's no charge. The only charge he'd brought against the driver was driving with uncorrected defective vision, because I'd asked about that. If I hadn't asked, probably there would be no charge at all. And he was um, given three points in a £250 fine.
0: He, he So he didn't have glasses or chose not to wear his glasses?
1: He didn't know he needed glasses. Seriously? Well, apparently, and when I challenged the senior investigating officer, he said, it doesn't necessarily matter if he could see or not. What matters is whether he knew he could see or not. So I said, did you ask him? And he said, uh, no. I wanted to punch him at that point.
0: Okay, so... I went
1: through the transcript, though, and it said in the transcript of the interview that he had difficulty reading small print.
0: Okay, So, gosh, there's so many different avenues to explore there because not only are we looking at, once an incident has happened, the ripple effect of that, but it's how we investigate it Mm. to prevent this happening again. Mm. And what we're saying is the investigation process 10 years ago was seriously flawed. And if we aren't able to investigate thoroughly, we aren't going to learn from the mistakes that are happening.
1: And this is a double scandal, and this is what even, you know, bereaved people say, is even as hurtful as the death, the lack of action afterwards, and that nobody's listening, and nobody wants to, wants to investigate that person's, that loved one's life matters so little that nobody's going to do anything to stop it happening again. And being in the construction industry, I was very familiar with the health and safety executive... Uh, riddle, method statements, risk assessments. You know, we have all of that on site. We have proper full investigation when there's a death on site. We have lessons learned. We have the site shut down till we knew what happened. And that just didn't happen. You know, that, that there is no investigatory body that is interested in doing that. Police are interested in clearing the road. And, you know, more often than not, there is not enough evidence in their eyes to bring a charge, which is what they're interested in.
0: Why is there a difference if there's an incident on a site in how that incident is investigated and if there's an incident on a public highway and how that incident Mm. is investigated? Why is there that difference?
1: Well, one falls under the HSE jurisdiction, one falls under the police jurisdiction, which is completely different. And the police don't see road crime as real crime. I remember going being taken to a court hearing with a senior officer and he was telling me all about crash for cash and uh you know I wasn't really interested in that I was interested in the court case for my dead sister and you know that was quite exciting business so road death's not really you know a big criminal investigation or exciting activity for police officers I think it's not really seen as a crime it's just kind of an inconvenience but the driver I feel totally vindicated in my criticism of the justice system because the driver, 15 months later, went on to run down and kill a pedestrian.
0: Was he wearing glasses?
1: He was not wearing his glasses.
0: What happened to that driver?
1: He went to jail.
0: How long from your sister's death was it for him to start driving again?
1: The family of the lady whom he ran down contacted me and they told me that the police had told them they must not contact me because um, they couldn't bring Ailey's death into the evidence because it would be prejudicial. And they told me that police said I'd been a thorn in their side which I was very proud of because I challenged them which is what I'm good at. Challenging I think now I've found my strengths. And they asked me to go to the court case because they were all abroad so I had to go to court and see this man in the dock. Um he'd run over my sister. He'd run over another woman. And I looked at him and he was behind a glass screen and I just he looked pitiful. He looked sorrowful. He looked broken and my heart just went out for him him. I just I just felt sorry for him and I thought, "Oh my god, what devastation, Un, you know, avoidable." Um, preventable devastation to three families has been caused here because we as an industry are not being responsible and not safe and not equipping and preparing and training our drivers. We as a justice system have let this man back out on the road again to kill again. And his daughter came up to me and found me and she said, Kate, I'm so sorry and I wish he'd been... I wish he'd been um, charged with your sister's death because then this wouldn't have happened again. He had a disabled son who he apparently dressed every day who was going to be devastated because his father wasn't there. It was just tragic. It was tragic for everyone. So I think, so um, to answer your question, myself and the second victim's family wrote a, a statement and we appealed to the judge. We didn't want him to go to prison. All we wanted was for him to not ever again have his hgv license back and the judge declined to read out that bit of our statement because it was up to him to make the judgment and he was sentenced to four years in jail and when he came out he could drive again
0: so there are so many people involved in minimizing the danger that we all face by using roads, not just in the antecedents to incidents, but in how these incidents are investigated and our willingness to learn and implement change. Where are we now, 10 years since your sister was killed, do you think?
1: In all of those issues... Well, it took me a long time to work out what the solution to this problem was, and that's why when I founded the See Me Save Me campaign, I talk about eliminating lorry danger through challenging the industry, and policymakers and the justice system because there were systemic failures in all three areas, as I've just explained in the justice system, as I've, as we've talked about in the industry, but also in policymakers. You know, I've contributed to parliamentary debates, been quoted in parliamentary reports. Ailey's case has been spoken about in both houses of parliament. So the failures on every level, I think the industry's come a long way. The justice system is a lot harder for me to tackle. There are other organisations like Road Peace are working hard on that. But when you just look at the Hillsborough incident, it took 20 years for a lot of people to bring action against that. That's why I focused myself and my efforts on the construction industry because I'm well-placed to do that but I think there's a long way to go in the justice system. There's a lot of vilification of cyclists who are unfortunate enough to not be able to stop in time when someone steps out on the road in front of them. There's animosity on the roads. Um, We've got a terrible road culture, and there's a lot of work to be done then. I think we've come a long way in the industry. We haven't come nearly far enough in the justice system, and policymakers are still, you know, fluffing around the edges and need to get a grip when we see other cities and other towns and other countries are investing in their cycling infrastructure they're investing in active travel i mean for goodness sake we've got 60 percent of primary age children are obese or overweight diabetes is one of our biggest problems costing the nhs you know, if you just look at this in a joined up holistic manner, by facilitating active travel, reducing lorry danger, being a responsible client, we can solve many of these modern day ills. Okay,
0: making it more accessible to walk, run, cycle,
1: Scoot, Scoot rollerblade,
0: rollerblade, skateboard—all of that. If we if we design the risk out of that, then we're more likely to have a healthier, in every sense of the word, culture. Kate Cairns, it's been a pleasure. Talking with you and um your drive and energy is admirable. Thank you very
1: much. Thank you for having me.
0: This is a partner episode to Active Training Team's Vulnerable Road User Podcast. If you haven't listened to it, please do. And please do subscribe and rate us as well. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Adam Christopher. My producer is Freya Hellier. Thank you, Freya. If you'd like to find out more about us, visit our website, activetrainingteam.co.uk.